Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Great to have you with us for another episode of Spy Talk. I'm Gene Meserve. Jeff Stein is off on medical leave. As Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine grinds on, it is harder and harder for intelligence agencies and others to get reliable information about the impact it's having inside Russia on the government, the economy, and public opinion. What's the state of average people in a town that's not Moscow, you know, someplace in the countryside? Are they uh, supporting Putin? Are they angry at Putin? Do they support the war? All of this is very useful, but it's very hard now to get that because people simply can't go to those areas. That was former CNN Moscow bureau chief Jill Doherty. We'll talk with her about the Russian information drought later in the podcast. Up first, this week at a launch facility in Kazakhstan, a Russian Soyuz rocket blasted into the sky. On board the Russian missile was an Iranian spy satellite. Iran's new intelligence collection capabilities are causing concern, particularly in Israel. John Krasaniak writes about Iran's nuclear, missile, and space programs as a research associate at the Wisconsin Project for Nuclear Arms Control. I asked him if this Russian launch of an Iranian spying asset was a game changer. I think it is a little bit of a game changer, actually. It's a big shortcut for Iran because Iran has been interested in putting satellites into space for almost two decades. And they've made some progress, but probably not as fast as they would like. And, and, you know, eventually Iran probably will get to a point where it can put a satellite of this capability into orbit on its own. But I think that's at least quite a few years away still. So the fact that the Russians are willing to sell them a pretty advanced satellite and put it into orbit for the Iranians, that is a shortcut. And that does give Iran a capability that it wouldn't have had any time soon, I think. So Iran says it's going to use this satellite to monitor water, agriculture, and natural disasters. Is it really that benign or is this dual use? I think it's a little bit of both. I I think we would all be probably surprised if there wasn't um, something of of a military use for this satellite um, in some some reconnaissance capacity. I mean, there's, I I don't doubt that they will also use it for, um, you know, monitoring natural disasters and things like that. Uh, But I think it, it will be both. So looking at the intelligence side of it, what kind of information can this satellite collect? What do we know about its capabilities? Well, it seems like from the reporting, this satellite will have an optical sensor, which is basically a camera. So it'll be able to take pictures. And the important thing is the resolution of those pictures. Um, From the reporting, it seems like the camera is gonna have about a one meter resolution, which means that each pixel in the image will correspond to about one meter by one meter square on the ground. 
Um, and that's pretty good resolution. You know, there are some commercial companies like Maxar and Planet and Airbus who offer actually higher resolution to commercial users like open source researchers like me. Um, I don't think Iran could get a subscription with any of those companies. But more importantly, um, because Iran will control the satellite, it can do whatever it wants with it, and it, it can take images of anything it wants. Uh, whereas if you or I were using the commercial satellite companies, we, we mostly have to wait and see what they upload for us in their software. Or sometimes we can submit requests to image a certain area, um, and we hope that you know, those companies will get those images on the next time the satellite passes over. But but for Iran to be able to control the satellite for itself and really image whatever it wants, that can be hugely beneficial for reconnaissance and for, you know, if you want to target something, if you're in a conflict and you want to target something that's moving, taking a picture of it every week or even every day isn't all that useful. You want to be able to take a picture of it sort of on demand so you can know exactly where it is and where it's headed. Um, and this would give Iran that capability. So they'd be able to track, for instance, troop movements. Um, they'd be able to monitor their borders. They'd be able to, I presume, look at critical facilities outside of their borders. Are those some of the things they might be doing with this? Yes, exactly. And it's worth noting, you know, Iran has a satellite in orbit. It's called the Noor 2, and they launched it earlier this year. And they claim that satellite has a similar sensor, but with a 10 meter resolution. So compare 10 meters to one meter. If you're talking about, you know, a truck, even a pickup truck with 10 meter resolution, it's going to be one pixel. It's going to be a blur. But with a one meter resolution, you'd be able to make out what that truck actually is. And so this gives a lot more detail and gives Iran a lot more insight into what they're looking at with that higher resolution. Israel is worried about this, uh, concerned that it may, may make it harder for their operatives to infiltrate Iran or, or that you know, if they want to delay the Iranian nuclear program, for instance, they might not be able to do that. They might not be able to thwart terror attacks. Are those valid concerns? Um, they're valid concerns. I don't know how much the satellite changes what Iran is already able to gather about um, those certain things. Maybe it does change it a little bit. But as we know, you know, there are other ways of collecting intelligence, other ways of collecting information, and other ways for Iran to figure out what, what Israel is up to. Um, I think maybe a bigger concern would be that Iran would share the data and the imagery that it collects with some of those non-state groups in the region like Hezbollah, who would then use that actionable intelligence um, for whatever their purposes are um, against Israel, for example. How do their capabilities with this new satellite, how will they compare with those of Israel or those of the US? Well, the US is sort of stands above the rest in terms of its reconnaissance capabilities and the exact capabilities of those US satellites are classified, so I, you know, I can't say for certain, but we think the U.S. satellites might have a resolution of five to ten centimeters. So they're very, very detailed. You may remember a few years ago, actually, 
um, when Donald Trump was president um, and Iran was getting ready to launch a rocket into space and there was an accident. There was an explosion on the launch pad in Iran. And uh, President Trump tweeted a photo of the launch pad after the rocket had exploded or whatever had happened. And this was very interesting because not because it showed what happened on the launch pad, but because it revealed sort of what is the capability of US spy satellites and just how precise, you know, how high of a resolution they have. And it was quite amazing actually to see, you know, it looked, it looked almost like there was just, you know, something flying overhead and snapped a picture. Um, it was that detailed. Israel, I can't say for certain what their um, reconnaissance capabilities are. So I'd, I don't know how much I can, how much I can be helpful there. What is the state of the Iranian space program overall, would you say? It's still fairly nascent, not in temporal terms. In temporal terms, the program has been around for, for about 20 years. And in 2009 was the first time when Iran successfully put a small satellite into orbit using a homegrown launcher. And that was a big deal for them. Now that satellite didn't stay in orbit for very long. It was, it was sort of a research um, payload and it only stayed in orbit for a couple months before it then fell back into the atmosphere and burned up. Um, ever since then, Iran has been working on building more sophisticated satellites and building bigger rockets to be able to launch those satellites into orbit. But it's run into a lot of problems and it's really not been able to ever consistently put satellites in orbit. Something always seems to go wrong. Do you have any idea why? Is it a lack of talent? Is it uh, sabotage? Those could be elements. I mean, I think the biggest thing is it's just really hard. You know, think about all the times SpaceX, SpaceX with all the talent that it has and all the access to just incredible cutting edge technology. And, you know, you see SpaceX launches fail from time to time, right? Now, what the Iranians are trying is not nearly as difficult or complicated as what SpaceX is trying to do, but it's still a hard, hard thing to do. It's, it's sending something into space is not easy. Who's helping them? The Russians obviously are helping them in this instance. Um, have they helped them in the past? And are there other countries who are, are weighing in? Well, in the very beginning of the program, Iran was interested in help getting help from Russia and from China. It's a little unclear um, how far that cooperation went because Iran at the end of the day really wants to be able to say they did this stuff all indigenously. Now, the basis for the rockets that Iran uses come from some missiles that were provided by North Korea. So a lot of Iran's missile arsenal really came from direct cooperation with the North Koreans. And the missile arsenal was what provided sort of the basis for some of the early space efforts. So in that way, you know, Iran got a huge boost in the beginning from the North Koreans. Today though, again, because of Iran so uh, heavily emphasizes being able to do things indigenously with all Iranian scientists and, and complete fully 100% Iranian effort, 
they don't seem to take too much help from other countries. Um, and this, this deal with the Russians is actually a little bit surprising. I mean, it's clearly worth it for Iran, given what they're, what they're going to gain from it. But it's surprising that they would openly admit that this is happening. So the Russians have reportedly said that the satellite is going to be used over Ukraine before it's deployed uh, over the Middle East. Um, I saw a report that Iran is pushing back on that. Do you know the truth of the matter? I don't. This is the most interesting and curious aspect of that story to me, because earlier in in the year, um, near the beginning, shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine, there were reports that Russia was wanting for reconnaissance satellites in the war effort. And I even saw a report that suggested Russia really only had two satellites with optical sensors um, that it could use in Ukraine. And if that's true, that does give a sort of an air of plausibility to this dimension of the story that they want to use this new satellite also over Ukraine. But it raises a lot of questions for me about how that would work. Because it's a little bit like you go to the car dealership and you buy a car, but before you take it home, uh, the car dealer says, you know, they want to take it on a road trip first. It doesn't really work like that, you know? So if this is the case, it raises questions about who will be owning the satellite, who will be operating the satellite at what times, and it seems like that would take some intense negotiations to work out. And this is why I'm not surprised that Iran would come out and deny through its official news outlet, the government's official news outlet has said this aspect of the story is not true. The, the Iranians have said they are going to control it flatly, right? Mm-hmm. From day one, Iranian specialists will be in control of the satellite. And, and they said all the data that's coming from the satellite will be encrypted through an algorithm that they developed and that they will have sole uh, control over that data. So this is what confuses me about this scenario that Russia may use it first. Russia has great launch capability. Look at, they were taking our people up to the space station because Mm -hmm. we didn't. Why in the world would they be dependent on an Iranian satellite rather than one of their own? Yeah, it's a good question. Why why not just you know, build a, another one. I'm sure it takes some time to build one, but uh, why not just build another one and put it up there? Uh, it's a good question. Who is running the Iranian space program? Is it the Revolutionary Guard or do they have something equivalent to NASA? Well, both. <laughs> Actually, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, Iran has two space programs. One is run by the Iranian Space Agency, and that is more or less like Iran's version of NASA. It's controlled by the government. The government sets the policy and the space agency implements the policy. But there is another space program that operated in secret really for more than a decade. There were suspicions, you know, researchers and experts suspected this might be happening, but it was really only in 2020 that the existence of this second space program, which is run by the Revolutionary Guard, came to be confirmed, sort of. The the government confirmed its existence, and they did so because the Revolutionary Guard space program launched 
a satellite. And so there was no denying uh, what was happening. There's great concern being expressed that this launch could help Iran develop its own launch and missile capabilities that down the road could be used to deliver nuclear weapons. Your thoughts on that? Um, there is a grain of truth to that. Um, you know, there is a huge overlap between the technologies used for space launch rockets and those used for missiles. I mean, if you can build a rocket, you could use it for either application. Um, that's not to say they're the same thing. Of course, you know, a rocket that you use for a space launch would need to be adapted in a lot of different ways to become a useful missile. Um, but but yeah, there is some truth to that. I, th I think even though even though this launch is taking place in Russia, no, there's no concern in this case because this is a Russian rocket. This is a little different. I think when people make that argument, what they're really talking about is Iran's homegrown launchers that they that they launch from time to time. In this case, no, no, I don't think there's any any risk about the missile aspect. Is this launch a breach? of the nuclear deal or any Security Council resolutions or anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. And because they've emphasized that this is a, at least on paper, it's a, a satellite that will only be used for civilian purposes. Even if it were, it'd be very difficult to, to prove that it was some violation. But the, the nuclear deal really has nothing to say about space capabilities. It does about missile capabilities, though, doesn't it? It does. Um, well, here we need to draw a little bit of a distinction between the nuclear deal and the Security Council resolution that endorsed the deal. The nuclear deal says nothing about missiles. The Security Council resolution does. And it says the Security Council calls on Iran to refrain from developing ballistic missiles that are designed to be capable of carrying nuclear weapons. There's a lot of caveats in that statement, but calls on is the biggest one because when the UN Security Council calls on a country to do something that is not mandatory, um, it's an encouragement, but it's even if Iran were to violate the language of that text, they're only called on, they're not, they're not prohibited from. Do you think that this launch has any impact on the ongoing nuclear talks to revive the nuclear deal? It could in political terms. Um, I think President Biden is gonna have a hard time selling the nuclear deal in the US if the negotiations are successful and if, if, if the US- Big if, yes, huge if. You know, we may, may, may be completely moot point because Iran and the U.S. may never get to yes on, on the negotiations. But if they do, it's going to be a little bit of a hard sell. And something like this makes it harder because a lot of people look at Iran and say, this is a growing threat. Look at all the different ways the threat is growing. Why do we want to cut a deal with, the, with this country? So this is just another sort of example or data point you could use to say, we really shouldn't be doing any kind of business with these these guys. So the experts have said that Iran can develop a nuclear weapon in very short order. Talk to me about how quickly they could put it on a missile and launch it. Oh, it's a big 
unknown. Right now, Iran does not have the fuel for the nuclear weapon. You know, they're enriching uranium to six, up to 60%. Um, they would need to enrich up to 90% to have the fuel for the weapon. And that could be done in fairly short order, a few weeks. Once they have the fuel, then, as you suggest, they need to, they need to have a delivery system. Yes, they need to put it on a delivery system. They need to turn it into an actual explosive device. Um, there's a number of things. And the common sort of assumption was that that would take maybe one or two years for Iran to do. But um, some experts have been sort of challenging that assumption and saying it's actually could be much shorter. You know, China, I think there was only about six months between when China first got the fissile material for a nuclear weapon compared to when they first conducted a nuclear test. And Iran is heavily motivated, or would be if, they, if that were what they were going for, they'd be highly motivated to do it as quickly as possible. We know from their pre-2003 program that they did fairly substantial work, made fairly substantial progress on building a nuclear weapon. They did some of those key tests that would be needed so they're not starting from zero. They're not starting from scratch. If they decide to build a nuclear weapon, they're not starting from scratch. And I think they could move quicker than what many people assume. But what about the missile side of the equation? How long will it take, do you think? Well, Iran has missiles that- Are they capable of carrying a warhead? They're capable of carrying a nuclear warhead, sure. To what distance is um, a separate issue. All of Iran's missiles right now can travel up to 2,000 kilometers, which means they couldn't reach the United States for certain. They couldn't reach Western Europe. Um, they can reach pretty much anywhere in the Middle East region though. And again, from that pre-2003 work, we know that Iran did some study on how to integrate a nuclear warhead in one of their missiles that they had at the time and they, that they still have. So again, not starting from scratch. Sum it all up for me, John. How worried should the U.S. be about Iran's nuclear missile and satellite capabilities? Um, well, Iran is becoming a regional power. Uh, maybe they already are a regional power. I guess it depends how you look at it. And the U.S. has a big presence in the Middle East. You know, we have bases all over the region. And we have partners in the Middle East who are very concerned about Iran. So I think we're right to also be quite concerned about all of these developments. And they're all happening at the same time. And that makes it more complicated too. You know, it's, if there's one, if the nuclear issue is the only issue, then it's easier to deal with in isolation. But now all these concerns about the missile program, um, all these concerns about Iran's support for uh, non-state groups in the region. And these are well-founded concerns. You know, if you talk to, you know, folks in Saudi Arabia or folks in the United Arab Emirates, they don't care that much about the nuclear program. They really care about the missile program and about the support for, for non-state groups because that is what affects them on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so I think the United States is right to also be concerned both on behalf of those partners in the region and for, you know, the troops and the people that we have who are also stationed in the region. Is this launch 
an indication that cooperation between Iran and Russia is deepening? Well, yes and no. Certainly Russia and Iran have converging interests in some areas, and this is one of them. But I think it's important to recognize that this launch of this satellite really was in the works as far back as 2015. You know, this didn't come out of nowhere. This isn't just a product of um, Russia's isolation following the invasion of Ukraine. This has been happening for a long time. It's also important to recognize that there are areas where Russia and Iran are in competition with another, one another. They're in competition with one another economically. You know, after the invasion of Ukraine, there were reports that Russia was really cutting into Iran's oil exports because Russia was having trouble finding buyers and was offering steep discounts on its oil. And this was undercutting the discounts that Iranians were already offering to uh, Chinese firms, for example, um, to get their oil uh, off the market. So there are areas where these two countries are competing with one another. Um, so sure, we should be concerned when Russia decides it wants to sell Iran a reconnaissance satellite, but there, we may want to be cautious about reading too much into how deep this cooperation will run. That was John Krasaniak of the Wisconsin Project for Nuclear Arms Control. His expertise is in the nuclear, space, and missile programs of Iran and North Korea. Stay with us in just a moment. We're going to examine the challenge of assessing what's happening in Russia during the war on Ukraine. Shortly after Russia launched its assault on Ukraine, the Russian government clamped down on journalists, foreign and domestic, passing draconian measures which made it illegal to use terms like war and invasion when talking about the conflict. Fearing for their safety, many journalists have fled the country, among them Jill Doherty, former Moscow bureau chief for CNN. Doherty says the clampdown isn't only having an impact on the Russian people and the information they can access. It is also making it more difficult for intelligence agencies to gauge the attitudes and circumstances of the Russian population. Right now, there is such a lack of information about what's going on in Russia. There are fewer, certainly fewer journalists in Russia right now. There are fewer business people. There are fewer travelers, and now there are fewer Russian journalists and um, you know think tank people, etc., who've left. So, just basic information that might be very useful for intelligence purposes, but but could be accessible. You know, not not just spy stuff, but it could be information in general. Is uh, is much harder to get. Don't and also, um, you know, the Russian government is revealing. Uh, less information about its economy, the data that the Russian government would normally give to journalists, um, you know, production of cars, inflation, banking, etc. They're cutting back on that information, too. So there's just less and less information, and it becomes harder to really understand what's going on in Russia. I think, you know, Gene, some of the most useful information that I found about Russia and I'm sure that ultimately intelligence agencies would want this, is the state of play. What's the state of uh, people, average people in a town that's not 
Moscow, you know, someplace in the countryside, are they uh, supporting Putin? Are they angry at Putin? Do they support the war? All of this is very useful, but it's very hard now to get that because people simply can't go to those areas. And that is going to have an effect, I think, not only, you know, on Russian journalism, but it's going to have an effect on how the world really understands what's going on in Russia. Would you go back tomorrow if you could? That is an excellent question. Um, I had a visa. I've always had a visa for years, for decades. My visa, the latest one, expired in May. Uh, I have not formally applied. Um, I am at this point wondering whether I would be given a visa, quite honestly. And if I had it, um, I think for the really the first time in my life, I would question whether I would want to go back without some type of um, understanding of how <laughs> I might be treated or whether I would have any tie to any organization that would kind of protect me if something went wrong. I think, sadly, we're going back to the old Soviet days when people really are being set up. And I, I don't like to think about that because I think I've always been a straight shooter when it comes to Russia. And I've tried to, you know, be honest in my reporting. But I wonder whether it would be very smart under these circumstances to return. Some have speculated that the Brittany Griner situation uh, and the potential um, release of Brittany Griner means that Russia may be more interested in taking hostages, people who they can use as bargaining ships. Are you afraid that that could happen to you? Well, I think it can happen to anyone, quite honestly, if if there's use, you know, if there was some use for a person, then certainly they could be uh, compromised very easily. You know, that happens all very easily where, you know, something can be slipped into your suitcase or your purse or onto your person. That's that's an old technique that goes back, of course, to way back in the Soviet days. But having been back and forth to the Soviet Union and Russia so many times, are you more concerned it could happen to you now than ever before? Honestly, yes, I am. Because I don't think there's any protection that I have. I mean, just being a straight shooter might help in one case, you know, somebody might say, well, she's not, you know, an, a Russophobe, as they say, and I don't think I am. But somebody else in the administration might say, yes, but it would be useful to have her and to embarrass her or to set her up. So I think anybody is dispensable, you know, right now. And I say all this with great sadness. I really do. I would like to go back to Russia. I want to go back to Russia, and I hope I will be able to. But right now, I'd have to think twice. One last question for you about Putin and his longevity. Given the restrictions on information within Russia, given his efforts to quash any sign of dissent, do you think he's um, unassailable? Is he going to remain in power for the foreseeable future? That is always... A, an odd um, calculus, because yes, the way it is right now, I do think he's going to stay in power. But Russia is a place with 
many unpredictable things have happened. And as the old kind of saying, you know, in Russian affairs uh, about Russia goes, you know, Russia is stable until it isn't, you know. So I, at this point, I do think that with the control that he has, uh, both, you know, physically and control of the government apparatus and also control of propaganda, that he's probably in office for the foreseeable future. The only thing that I, I think could be a wild card would be some effect of the sanctions that might make it just so horrendous that people will say, what is, is this worth it? Is this war worth it? And, and turn against Putin. But, you know, Putin and the government have already kind of inoculated people by telling Russians, you know, Russians are survivors. We did this in World War II. We can do it again. We can get through this. And I think a lot of Russians believe that because they're proud of their country. But it's, it, yeah, I can tell you one thing. I think it's a very unstable situation and anything can happen. That was Jill Doherty, former Moscow bureau chief for CNN and now an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and a global fellow with the Woodrow Wilson Center. I will be back next week with another edition of Spy Talk while Jeff Stein continues his medical leave. In the meantime, we hope you will subscribe to the podcast and to Spy Talk's Substack newsletter, which provides a wealth of original reporting on intelligence and national security. Also, follow us on Twitter. Jeff is at SpyTalker. I am, no surprise, at Gene Meserve. Have a great week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.